This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. The Montingalia County Quick Response Team was launched in 2019 as a collaboration among public health, first responders, and other health care and private partners. Collaborative efforts like these help the community understand what's at stake. I think as people start to understand uh, substance use disorders more and recognize it as a, de- a disease that needs treatment. Um, they're more open to the conversation of anything substance use related, including testing strips and preventative measures. That story and more coming up this West Virginia morning. The Tennessee Valley Authority is building a utility-scale solar farm on top of a coal ash site in western Kentucky. Derek O'Purley with member station WKMS says the initiative could help the agency transition to renewable energy. The $216 million initiative in West Paducah would create a 309-acre solar farm capable of producing 100 megawatts of power. Solar advocates say that's enough to power roughly 10,000 homes. TVA spokesperson Scott Fiedler says the project is part of multiple TVA efforts towards decarbonization. We're bringing new life to a coal facility that, you know, would have just sat dormant there, an ash stack. If this pilot is successful, the agency says it could replicate it at other coal-fired power plants to potentially produce up to 1,000 megawatts of solar energy across the region. Solar proponents have expressed support for the project, while some environmental advocates are concerned it could worsen groundwater pollution from the coal ash field. According to the EPA, such projects can be put on coal ash landfills without endangering the environment. TVA officials say the project could be operational within two years. I'm Derek Operly in Paducah. Residents affected by an August flood that hit a West Virginia county are frustrated that federal emergency aid is not coming. Rhonda Hudson's Kanawha County home took on more than a foot of water when a nearby creek flooded August 15th. Hudson told WCHS-TV she is living out of bags and boxes and using electric heaters to stay warm. The Federal Emergency Management Agency denied Kanawha County assistance on Thursday. The agency declared the county did not have enough widespread damage to be approved for a disaster declaration. The roots of the National Football League go back to some gritty Appalachian coal and steel towns of the early 1900s. As Randy Yoey reports, a small town came together with a legacy that endures today. The football chatter is palpable at the historic Stadium Lunch Tavern in Portsmouth, Ohio. It's a football Sunday in December, and there's memorabilia from two NFL franchises on display. The crowd has come from nearby Municipal Stadium, where the infamous Iron Man game was played. In that contest, the NFL's 1932 Portsmouth Spartans played the same 11 men the entire game and shut out their bitter rivals, the Green Bay Packers, 19 to nothing. That championship game paved the way into dividing the NFL into two divisions, leading to what we now call Super Bowls. We are off and running as another episode of Detroit City of Champions. Detroit sports historian Charles Avison has brought his podcast, Detroit the City of Champions, to Portsmouth for a weekend of dedications and remembrances. Portsmouth's NFL franchise became the Detroit Lions, which won the 1935 NFL championship. 
Avison says the 12 or so Spartans turned Lions who played in both championships deserve to be honored as local football heroes. And you literally cannot tell the, the history of the Detroit Lions without factoring in who the Portsmouth, the, the Portsmouth Spartans team. It wasn't like some random team name that was transferred and they transferred a bunch of equipment in the back of a wagon. This was the players from Portsmouth came to Detroit and they brought with them the rivalries that had been built in Portsmouth. Players like the legendary Jim Thorpe and Dutch Clark. To remember the Iron Man game and honor those leather helmet wearing legends, I was part of a volunteer group that raised the funds needed to replace the old crumbling sign that welcomes visitors to the still in operation Portsmouth Municipal Stadium. Professor Drew Fight, director of the Center for Public History at Portsmouth Shawnee State University, has worked tirelessly to ensure the Iron Man game and the Spartans turn lions who played in it won't be forgotten. Portsmouth uh, really is a football community. It has a really, really rich history. Its history is tied in with the early days of the NFL. And everybody loves the NFL today. And just the fact that Portsmouth has such a fantastic team that uh, really went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Green Bay Packers and other greats of the time, you know, cherishing this history and taking care of our stadium here. The walls of Portsmouth native Will Malt's restaurant, the Scioto River, are covered with Spartan team pictures and memorabilia. Malt is one of many here thrilled with having a weekend of memories turned into monuments. I'm overwhelmed. I, I, I love the Portsmouth Spartans, and I love the current Detroit Lions, which were the Portsmouth Spartans. We have great camaraderie and great friends from Detroit, and we enjoy ourselves when we get together. Also making the trip in from Detroit is 82-year-old Tom Urich. In 1985, as a Motor City radio reporter, Urich covered the 1935 Lions team's 50th anniversary reunion, where a few of the old converted Spartan players felt slighted that the Portsmouth Connection legacy to the City of Champs was forgotten. Urich promised them then he'd make that right. 88 years later, we're not just dedicating a new sign this weekend, but putting up plaques honoring those players in Tom Urich's name. I told him I would do everything I could. It brings a tear to my eye a little bit to, to help to help uh, Portsmouth know that they were included in the uh, Hall of or in the City of Champions. And now it's taken 88 years, but it's now officially Portsmouth is part of the city of the greatest sports situation ever known. Drew Fight and I agree, without Tom Urich's tenacity, none of this weekend's small-town, big-emotion events would have happened. He felt that uh, the story of Portsmouth really had, had not gotten the attention that they deserved, and that was what the, the old Spartan players felt as well. And so Tom made them a promise years and years ago that he would do what he could to help keep this history alive, and we're here today to make that, make that happen. The Ironman game was played December 4, 1932, 90 years ago yesterday. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Portsmouth, Ohio. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 7.51. Becoming partly sunny today, high temperatures in the 40s and 50s. Tonight, there's a chance of rain, lows in the 30s. Scattered rain tomorrow with highs in the 50s. Chance of rain tomorrow night and Wednesday. Lows tomorrow night in the 40s. Highs on Wednesday in the 50s and 60s. 
Support for WVPB is provided by CAMC Neurology Services, specializing in treatment of epilepsy, stroke, and headaches. More at camc.org neuro. West Virginia has been at the center of the country's opioid epidemic for years. As Chris Schultz reports, robust community responses have been built to tackle the issue head on. The Monongalia County Quick Response Team was launched in 2019 as a collaboration amongst public health, first responders, and other healthcare and private partners. The main purpose of the QRT, as it's abbreviated, is to identify individuals who have overdosed ideally within 24 to 72 hours, and follow up with them and connect them to treatment resources or whatever it is that they might be in need of. But Monongalia County QRT coordinator Brittany Irick says QRTs encompass much more. An individual who is in active substance misuse, they might be neglecting a lot of other areas of health. That could be dental, the lack of health insurance, vision, or maybe they don't even have an ID. Connecting with an individual in addiction is more than just connecting them to to treatment for their substance use disorder. It's also um, looking at their overall health and well-being. This is part of a broader push for harm reduction in the substance use community. With an active HIV outbreak in the state connected to substance use, a holistic head-to-toe approach to treatment is more important than ever. We view harm reduction as people who have an addiction until they are at that point in their life where they are ready to address and break that addiction they are going to continue to use. Harm reduction is just an effort to keep them alive until they are at that point where they want to change. If they're dead, we can't help them. In the years since the team's formation, their focus has expanded beyond community members in active substance use or in recovery. We focus on prevention and just getting out into the community and educating about substance use disorder and how it affects a lot of people. We've been able to connect a lot of individuals to treatment and resources, getting lots of Narcan into the community and doing a lot of education. That includes events like Save a Life Day this past September, where Irik and her team handed out more than a thousand kits of the overdose reversing medication to the public. And QRT, just like the opioid crisis, doesn't stop with Monongalia County. I I think that we're pretty close to every county having a QRT. I don't think that every county has their own, but each county has the ability to have some sort of coverage, even if that's a coach from another county that can link an individual to um, treatment or a resource. She says there has been an increased interest in harm reduction from the public in recent months including greater access to testing strips. Joe Class is the assistant coordinator for the Monongalia QRT. He says the increased public interest aligns with the recent increase in fentanyl. Fentanyl seems to be involved in a lot of our um, drug overdose cases. And what's, I think, really important to understand is that it's not just being put into opioids. So that's really why we're pushing the fentanyl testing strips. He says the recent spike in fentanyl content in everything from MDMA to counterfeit Xanax and cannabis products has created an opportunity to increase awareness around harm reduction practices. For for a lot of the college students, 
it's really kind of given us another in as far as making contact with them and, you know, seeing what's going on in that community. Because, you know, we weren't really sure how much interest there would be in the fentanyl testing strips, but whenever we do events, um, you know, at the university or where there are university students, you know, many individuals are grabbing fentanyl testing strips. It's simply another tool just to make sure that, you know, you're hopefully, you know, not doing something that has fentanyl in it. The stigma surrounding substance use can often complicate necessary conversations about treatment or even overdose prevention. But the QRT says they've seen that change as well, in part because of the surge in fentanyl-related overdoses. Chris Arthurs is a peer recovery support specialist, one of the team members that reaches out to recent overdose survivors to provide support and resources. I think as people start to understand uh, substance use disorders more and recognize it as a, de- a disease that needs treatment. Um, they're more open to the conversation of anything substance use related, including testing strips and preventative measures. Arthur's will celebrate six years of sobriety later this month and has been involved in peer recovery for four years. The beautiful thing about peer recovery is it's about that lived experience. So a peer recovery support specialist is someone that has been through addiction in their own personal lives. He says in that time, the recovery landscape has changed significantly, and it's not just in conversations, but substantively. Arthur says things are different from when he sought out treatment and hopes to see those changes continue. And just in the last five or six years, we've seen treatment facilities open. We've seen a growth in in the recovery community. We've seen sober living houses open up, and, and we've seen peer recovery coaches hired Having witnessed that just in the last five years, that's what I hope to see continue happen for, for the foreseeable future. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Amelia Nicely, Bill Lynch, Caroline McGregor, Curtis Tate, Chris Schultz, Eric Douglas, Liz McCormick, Randy Yowie, and Shepard Snyder. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning. <laughs>